welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is located on the ancestral lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Taste Sequetum territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequetum Ulu. And the film adaptation of today's text, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, was filmed in St. Thomas, Ontario, the traditional home mm. of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. Not that far from you, Joe. This is true, yeah. Joe, can I start off today by telling our listeners that I have COVID? And yeah. sometimes I say things that come out of my mouth in the wrong direction. And I just want to say that first of all, because you're going to have to edit it. But second of all, because they have to listen to it. So I'm just apologizing to everyone. <laughs> you know what? Brenna is a true trooper. She is not feeling her best, but she said we should continue with today's recording because I was like, oh, we need to make sure that the episodes can come out on time. So uh, yeah, everyone send Brenna your well wishes <laughs> on Instagram and Blue Sky or maybe give us a review. That would yeah. be lovely Ooh, too. That I've heard those are medicinal. <laughs> at least for the popularity of the podcast yes oh joe so we're talking about scary stories to tell in the dark we are well into halloween season here Mm -hmm. um i apparently am the only like preteen in the 80s 90s you didn't read this did you didn't ever read this no i didn't i never did wild okay yeah so this, for those who are like me, it's a collection of like short horror stories, uh, obviously for kids. We're reading the first one today, but there's a series mm-hmm. and it came out in 1981. So it has yeah. been terrifying children for like 40 some odd years, Joe. <laughs> Did you mention who wrote it? No, it was written by Alvin Schwartz, Joe. <laughs> and so genuinely, let me just say here, I didn't find the stories that spooky, whatever. They're mm-hmm. like campfire stories from a million years ago. Right. The, some of the drawings by Stephen Gamble, though, what the yeah. heck? Okay. So my suspicion, I didn't grow up with these either. I came to these very late. I think I really discovered they were a phenomenon when the film was coming out. And the reaction from people always seems to gravitate not to the scariness of the stories, but actually those drawings. And I thought it was really fascinating because we kicked off spooky season with the house with a clock in its walls. And we briefly touched on how important the Edward Gorey illustrations mm-hmm. are in that book, but we didn't really have a sustained conversation. I think it's so fascinating how impactful a visualization of either a creature or a scary moment can be, because I think particularly for scary stories, that is what most people gravitate to when they talk about how scary it really is. Well, they're perfect illustrations for flashlights. Do you know what I mean? Like they're Mm -hmm. really sort of sketchy, black and white, low on detail, high on like empty eye sockets and and creep factor. (laughs) Um, And what's interesting, and I guess we'll talk about this when we get to the film though, is like, okay, so if we've got the stories, we've got the illustrations and we've got the film. The Mm -hmm. illustrations are so much scarier than the stories or the film, like, put together. Um, And even the renderings of the creatures in the film, Mm -hmm. so much less scary than what is just amassed in a few sort of pen and ink lines Mm -hmm. on the page. And so I'm hoping you can explain more about, like, why I find it so much scarier on the page than when I see it translated to screen. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, 
the stories are just so very childlike. And I don't mean that, like, people die and there is gruesomeness in the stories for sure. Mm -hmm. But there's also, there's really explicit morality. There's a real sense that you know at the beginning of the story, like, who is going to survive or not survive by the end. Mm -hmm. Whereas I find the images much more uncanny, unsettling than anything else happening. So I don't know. That was how I felt about it. I can see why the images would make a bigger impression on you looking at this at like a sleepover than the stories necessarily would. Hmm. I do think that there's something challenging about coming to this text as an adult mm -hmm. or not having the nostalgia value because I am there with you reading this I'm not going to say it's a chore because the stories are so short. Oh, yeah. And, well, there are a lot of them. Like, there's 29 stories in this first volume, and they run the gamut. Some are very funny. Some, as you said, are morality tales. Some of them are very familiar urban legends. They're, they're clearly being pulled from all corners of the globe. So there's a familiarity to them that I found having watched a lot of horror, having heard a lot of urban legends and been around a lot of campfires. <laughs> There wasn't a lot of newness to the stories, no. which left me focusing primarily on the illustrations as a way to amplify or bring them to life. And that's where I found the true power light. We should, given our own history as a show, acknowledge that this is one of the most challenged books of the 90s right. and the 2000s. <laughs> Tell me why, because I don't understand. <laughs> Even as recently as 2012. So obviously complaints about violence, disturbing subject matter. Sure. But I think the biggest thing is, particularly because these banned book lists usually come out of the US, it's mm -hmm. religious concerns, right? It's oh. the notion of like mm. demons and what might be perceived as anti-Christian imagery and the ways in which like, you know, just people who don't even want their kids reading Harry Potter, right? Though they're not going to mm -hmm. want their kids reading scary stories to tell in the dark. Right. But also specifically... The fact that like cannibalism and murder and disfigurement come up mm -hmm. and the artwork has been a subject of specific criticism. And in fact, like I have no proof of this, Joe, but in 2011 right. for the 30th anniversary, HarperCollins re-released the books with images by the person who illustrated the Lemony Snicket series, I think. Uh, his name's uh, Brett Helquist. So he was the illustrator for a series of unfortunate events. Mm -hmm. And Everybody was like, oh, this is going to be so exciting because, you know, he's this famous illustrator. And they were like super kid friendly images. Yeah, boo. No, people were mad. People <laughs> were big mad. But I suspect we might find in school libraries that those Brett Helquist uh, images have, have made it easier to stay on the shelves. Mm hmm. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Right. I mean, I can definitely understand the concerns particularly for young kids, some of the cannibalism, some of the murder, it is disturbing, however brief and almost nondescript some of these are, right? Like, yeah, it's hard to suggest that Schwartz is even writing characters so much as uh, caricatures, because yeah. they're staples, right? It's, you know, random woman who doesn't even have a name who puts on the murder dress and ends up getting poisoned because uh, a corpse had leaked formaldehyde into it. And you think, okay, yeah, that's a classic. But also, <laughs> it's three pages, it's four pages at the most kind of thing. Mm -hmm. They truly are stories you would tell someone if you only have a brief amount of time before you're putting someone to bed or at a campfire. And I think in that capacity, the stories do have a power to them, a, mm. a brief intensity, like as a short 
oral tradition, I can definitely see the appeal. But those illustrations are everything. I feel like I haven't seen something like what Gamel is doing before, and I can understand why there's a longevity to them, because they are so evocative. It's worth noting, right, that I think Alvin Schwartz was a journalist, but he was particularly interested in folklore and collecting mm-hmm. up the folklore of different cultures, not just ghost stories, although he has many, many books in addition to these ones that deal with sort of local folklorish kind of ghost stories. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he also has like collections of, you know, riddles and lies and nonsense, all kinds of aspects of folkloric culture. So. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a sense here that this is an act of collection. Like we're we're collecting up these things that people tell each other and every single one of these stories you could replace the protagonist with okay. So this friend of my brother's cousin. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly that. And definitely, you know, I heard the the wedding dress story as if it was something that happened to somebody somebody sort of knew, right? Mhm. They're all stories that kind of got passed around to kids. And so from the perspective of like an archive of folklore of treating the kinds of scary stories we tell each other as something culturally important. It's an interesting, good, important series for that reason. I just mm-hmm. like, it's not my jam specifically, but like, I get it. Yeah. 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 I mean, to me, I feel like the episode that we're doing right now is going to be primarily dominated by our discussion of the film because it is trying to string together these short stories into something more substantial. And I'm interested to have a conversation about how successful we both found that to be. But yeah, I mean, there's there's an appeal to the short stories. It does feel very middle grade fiction to me despite (laughs) the fact that some of the subject matter is quite dark and the illustrations are scary but apart from that i think there's just something very digestible and gateway horror about this so even though it's not our jam i can imagine a lot of younger kids like preteen kids picking this up scaring each other at sleepovers or something and then saying cool now i'm ready to try something harder and that initiates a lifelong love of horror and scary stories i mean that's my story obviously obviously this is where your journey begins (laughs) brenna you're going to be a hardcore horror addict by the end of this session yeah i don't know how much more i have to say about the book joe like i feel like i should have more to say about the book but i don't know that i do no me neither All right, let's talk about the movie. Okay. Some people believe if we repeat stories often enough, they become real. They make us who we are. That can be scary. Eat it, Harold. Do you want to see Haunted House? Some kids went missing, so they boarded it up. Okay, we saw it. Should we go now? Who ordered the chicken? What's that? It's a book of scary stories. Tommy's story. Hey, what's going on? Tommy's missing. Tommy's name was in the book. There's no way it's actually connected, right? Okay, what if what happens in the book is exactly what's happened for real? Oh my god. 
Margie! Stella! Listen, you're in the next story. We're reading it right here. It's a corpse looking for her missing toe. All right, so Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark gets transformed into a film in 2019. It's directed by Andre Overdahl. It's written by Dan and Kevin Hageman, and it's from a story by Guillermo del Toro, Patrick Milton, and Marcus Dustin. And it's funny because those last two are guys who have worked on, like, Saw movies and other quote-unquote torture porn films. Guillermo del Toro is known for his flights of fancy and fantasy, and he's an Academy Award-winning artist and magician in some ways, like the the power his images have. So he was once slated to direct this, but it went to Overdahl. And what we get is this loose collection of the most notable short stories strung together in a narrative that... I think it's just a bit more palatable for people. Mm. Like they had discussions about doing it as an anthology, but they worried that I would agree with this. The worst story in your anthology is typically how that anthology gets remembered. hundred percent. Yep. 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 Yeah. So the film stars uh, Zoe Coletti as Stella, and then she is friends with Augie, who is played by Gabriel Rush, as well as Chuck, played by Austin Zajur. And they have a nemesis, Tommy, who is played by our favorite, Austin Abrams. He's always a bit of a dick when we Mm -hmm. see him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Not a good dude, obviously. (laughs) And then there's a fourth person that gets dragged into this enterprise, Ramon. He is an Justice outsider. For Ramon. He's just trying to flee the Vietnam War. He gets sucked into this BS. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so he's played by Michael Garza, and he ends up butting heads with Police Chief Turner, who's played by Gil Bellows. We also have a backstory with Stella where she blames herself for her mom disappearing when she was a young girl. Her mom ran away. She didn't disappear. Sorry. Mm-hmm. And her father, Roy, is played by Dean Norris from Breaking Bad. We also have Ruthie, who is the older sister of Chuck, and she is played by Natalie Gashorn. And then finally, we've got uh, some notable, I guess, scary performers. Mm -hmm. So we have Mark Steger as both Harold the Scarecrow and the Pale Lady from the hospital. We have Javier Botep as the Big Toe Corpse. And finally, Troy James as the Jangly Man, which is the body parts that assemble itself into a scary creature that chases Ramon for the back half of the film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, Brenna, I saw this film before I ever read any of the short stories. So I have a different impression of it. But I'm curious, what did you think of this movie as an adaptation? <laughs> you you texted me that this morning. And I was like, I didn't mind it. Mm-hmm. There are things here that I really liked. I love the way the film opens with kind of this vibe of like, it's going to be like a stand by me or Mm -hmm. a like sandlot. Like it has that sort of, it's 1968, there's no parents around, we're just kids on Halloween doing fun kid stuff and getting into trouble. Like <laughs> getting it has into some, trouble, yeah. <laughs> it has some nice vibe at the beginning. Um, and there's aspects of it that I really like. So the through line of the story is that Sarah Bellows is this teenager who has been trapped by her family and accused of witchcraft when really children in the town have been dying mysteriously and everybody blames 
creepy old Sarah locked up in the house when really mm-hmm. <laughs> the family is straight up poisoning the town through their water mill with mercury. And instead of right. taking responsibility for it, they scapegoat their disabled daughter. Like it's really mm-hmm. dark. And yes. I thought that that use of, you know, there's a lot of interesting things happening there that the film the film isn't as interested in as I am, mm-hmm. right? Like the disability politics of that and the institutionalization of Sarah and like the way in which the family will sell her out to hide their own shame. Like that all is right. really interesting. And in the moments when we get to see, you know, there's there's a point where Stella is sort of pleading with Sarah where we have some of that emerge. And those are my favorite moments of the movie. But the stuff that's not about either the kids' friendships or the Vietnam War or Mm -hmm. Sarah's, like, political contexts dragged for me, I have to say. And unfortunately, (laughs) that's literally all the scary stories. Yeah. I mean, you know me. I'm easy to scare. Mm -hmm. Something about these scary stories did not work for me. I didn't find the creatures particularly persuasive, even though it's not like terrible CGI happening or anything. I just didn't find that scary. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I don't know. I don't know. Something didn't work for me. Maybe I wasn't connected enough with the kids who weren't Stella and Ramon. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, part of the struggle, I think, with this movie is that there's a lot of characters and several of them feel superfluous. So there's four kids in the main arc, but then we also have Ruthie. We also have Tommy. There's too many people. There's too many people. (laughs) I mean, even when you were just reading out the cast, I was sitting here thinking like, I've forgotten about easily half of these people. Yeah, and I think the problem is that in somewhat tried and true horror fashion, several of these people aren't characters so much as people who will be put through set pieces. So Justice for Augie! Right? Yeah. <laughs> and and we should note, the film ends on a slightly ambiguous note, so it kind of wraps this up, but it very much feels like a first chapter. Mm-hmm. There's potentially a sequel in development. It was announced during the writers and the actor strike, so who knows whether it will actually come to fruition. But it very much ends on an uncertain note, especially with regards to Chuck and Augie and where they are at. So it's like Stella will set off to find them. And in some ways, that's not incredibly satisfying because Mm -hmm. these are interesting characters, but they don't get a ton of screen time because they basically get abducted during their adaptations of these short stories. Well, and it's an interesting choice that Ruth survives, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I was thinking the final shot of the film is Stella and her dad and Ruth. And I guess they've just gone and gotten Ruth out of the hospital, maybe? Mm -hmm. But why is Stella's dad doing that? And then they're driving Mm -hmm. somewhere, but you don't know where. (laughs) And Ramon's been sent to war, which Mm -hmm. is like not a satisfying ending for Ramon. And instead, so we have like this character who we know literally nothing about is one of our sole survivors of this whole Mm -hmm. story. I was left very, yeah, I guess unsatisfied is the word, but also just puzzled by the choices of the end of the film, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like why wasn't Ruth abducted or taken yeah. away or something like that? And we don't know. I mean, maybe it's just that her adaptation story, which of course is the classic, oh, spiders are actually living inside a person and they hatch and it's really gross, so gross and disturbing. I've seen variations of this where they live inside a person's beehive. Uh, in this case, it's a pimple on Ruthie's face. 
And to me, this is only in here because it's one of the most famous scary stories mm-hmm. and it makes for a visually enticing, aka scary, bit. But yeah, Ruthie's not a character, so it it doesn't even make sense. What did she tell her parents? How come they're not involved? Like, yes. those are all boring questions I don't necessarily want the answer to, but the film also isn't doing the work to help us understand how we got to this point well and there are a lot of those moments in this film actually like this movie for a tight 108 minutes Mm. (laughs) is really bad at tying off its ends so like for example the ruthie story she's covered in spiders they throw some dirty water on her which i found really upsetting to get the spiders Mm. off eventually (laughs) medics come and take her and she's like on a stretcher and you're like oh okay she's gonna be okay and then Mm -hmm. um her brother yells my sister is gone and i was like what what like dead gone and then in the next scene when they're with the police officer stella's like oh we saved ruthie and they're like the police officer's like you didn't save ruthie she's in the nut house for life and it's like it Okay, is she? What? (laughs) And there's so many of those moments in the film. And I think Mm -hmm. it's a problem because the sort of not an anthology, but sort of an anthology structure of it Mm -hmm. means that the plot is never particularly immersive. Right. Because you're always kind of jumping from one climax to the next climax, which Mm -hmm. as we've talked about, for whatever reason, I didn't find those particularly exciting. So without an immersive plot, with all of these jumping around climaxes, and then with all of these untied ends that make you keep going, wait, what? Mm-hmm. It ends up being like a very strangely disjointed viewing experience. Yes. When really, like, you could have made me a movie about, like, Ramon trying not to go to Nam, and I would have been happier. So it's like, what, what am I watching exactly? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So I'll confess (laughs) the first time I saw this was when it opened back in 2019. And my main issue with this film is that it is using the specter of Vietnam in the same way that we talked about on our recent mailbag episode, where we talked about how stories will often use dystopia, but they don't actually want to engage with it. And they don't really Mm -hmm. seem to know what to say about it. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel about Vietnam in this film. Like, Mm -hmm. we deliberately set it at this point. We've got a character who is a draft dodger, and he ends the movie being shipped out. And I don't know what the movie is trying to say, because it's not at all clear. And it doesn't mesh well with the story that we're telling about the Bellows, which feels completely disjointed to me. So I, I actually really get my back up, because I think that this is a gently offensive use of one of the great American tragedies, like how we rushed into Nam and it's very racist war, all sorts of politically sensitive issues. But I don't know what it's doing in this movie, except for the fact that the only person who isn't white is the character tied to this plot line. This is the other thing, right? Like, we have this one non-white character who actually manages to survive everything and we send him off to mm-hmm. what all the characters are pretty sure is in, is definitely death in Vietnam, right? Yes. And mm-hmm. what's interesting is that the film doesn't even pick up the low-hanging fruit. So, like, Ramon's brother, we're told, has been returned to the family literally in pieces. Mm-hmm. Ramon's biggest fear is the jangly man, this guy who is, like, a creature made up of different body parts and can like connect and disconnect himself. 
Mm-hmm. But is a line ever drawn between those two things, Ramon's biggest fear and the loss of his brother and how, like, Mm-mm. embodied both of those things are? No, the film never does the work of connecting it. Like, you're meant to yeah. figure it out. I get that. But not in any kind of satisfying way. It's not like you go, oh, like, when he overcomes the jangly man, he also has, like, made peace with his brother's death or anything. Mm-hmm. There's none of that. Well, and I think that this ties into your issue with the scary sequences. And I'm going to pose the question that I often try to refrain from doing because I don't always think it's productive, but I'm not sure who the intended audience for this movie is. You said it's a tight 140. That is antithetical, by the way, because there's nothing tight about this movie. It is sprawling and unwieldy, and it's way too long for what it's trying to accomplish. (laughs) And simultaneously, way too short for how many plot lines and characters. But... To me, this feels very gateway horror, much Mm. like the short stories are, right? It's intended to scare younger viewers. But then we've got the stuff with Vietnam. And as you said, the disconnected storylines that don't wrap up. And I think a lot of that would go over younger audiences' heads. Like, they're not going to connect the jangly man to Vietnam because they don't know what Vietnam is. So is this for younger kids? And that's why we're pulling punches with the scariness and the blood and the gore? Or is it intended for adults? And I think the answer is both. And that makes it slightly unsatisfying for both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we haven't even talked about this central conceit of this book that's writing these stories, which is really Mm -hmm. Sarah, Um, which is a nice throwback to the book itself. Like, sure, we're going to talk about a similar kind of conceit when we look at Goosebumps, right? It's like, how do you deal with this incredibly culturally resonant like book in an Mm -hmm. adaptation i i kind of liked the way they made it like this artifact of sarah's house like there were things here that could have worked really well and i actually the whole movie needed to be about the story and sarah and i i feel like they think it is the creative team does but the problem is is too many of these stories stand alone right like even Mm -hmm. harold which is the most famous scary story which is why he comes out first he's in all of the marketing for this film it's a scary scarecrow that's great it's visually haunting what happens to tommy is upsetting even if it doesn't entirely make sense and again feels like the movie pulling its punches we don't want to show blood so we're just gonna have corn and wheat come out of this boy but at the end of the day it's like Okay, well, this story has nothing to do with Sarah Bellow, so we keep start stopping that story so that we can inject these moments of horror that don't ring entirely true because we're pulling our punches. Well, and likewise, the the Ruth story is the same thing because Ruth is only Mm -hmm. tangentially connected to this group, right? Exactly. They would have been so much better off to, first of all, drop the whole Vietnam thing. Right. Focus on the story of Sarah Bellows and the stories that connect to our protagonists. And Mm -hmm. that would have been, like, more than enough, I'm pretty sure. I'll confess, I also find it slightly unsatisfying, and maybe this is just because it's an unconventional way of approaching it, but I don't find it satisfying that Sarah Bellows is, as you mentioned, a disabled character who is abused horribly by her family, Mm -hmm. both within the house, but then also, you know, we hear tape of her being submitted to electroshock therapy and other really horrible things right and she then becomes the quote-unquote villain because she is going after these kids 
who have done nothing except go into her house. Like, I think the film makes a huge mistake by not saving Tommy as the actual villain of the film. So we get rid of the real villain in our very first set piece in this movie. And I think that that doesn't make sense. No, I agree with you. I was really distressed by that turn. There's an opportunity for the film to be about Sarah's exploitation and like Mm -hmm. that all of this is a misunderstanding blaming Sarah for things that like, you know, you know, Tommy's like low key, like, Oh, he's a junior sociopath. Yeah. (laughs) He could definitely be the bad guy, but instead we kill him off right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's confusing too, because (laughs) you're like, oh, the vengeance has been taken against the guy who I thought we were going to be mad at for the whole movie. Exactly. And I'm 21 minutes in. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. And instead we spend the whole movie being like, okay, so Sarah Bellows is an actual villain. And then that's disproven. But the reality is, is that she is still a villain. She's killing people. And the fact that we don't get anyone back. It's satisfying that Tommy doesn't return. Sure. Sure. But it's not satisfying that Augie and Chuck don't return. Like, at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you wanted to set up a sequel, which this film clearly wanted to do because there's more stories to tell, there's other ways that you could have done that that would have given us a certain amount of catharsis of giving the kids back. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. It's perplexing narrative decisions that don't entirely work for me. But you mentioned that you don't find the creatures in these set pieces very scary. And I I do want to have a conversation about that. And I wonder if it's something about the difference between using your imagination based Mm. on, as we've discussed, a very simple almost sparse visual Mm -hmm. compared to having to actually animate that and bring it to life so even though we've got some really amazing performers in these roles to me only one of these set pieces works which one it's the pale lady with chuck in the hospital i think i mean you could quibble with whether or not any of them work i imagine we'll hear from folks who tell us yeah i like this one or you know what this is exactly how i imagined it when i read the story or something like that so i'm curious folks let us know but for me there's an inherent creepiness to the pale lady she's not especially malicious i like that she almost seems either slightly gleeful or a little bit sad but this idea that there's nowhere for chuck to run and then the red lighting really sells the malevolence of that sequence to me can i tell you that i was confused here because i thought that that was sarah bellos oh okay Mm -hmm. yeah um especially because he dies well dies is abducted disappears whatever by mm-hmm. hugging. And so I was like, right. oh my God, this is Sarah Bellows. And it's like, again, here's me thinking she's not the villain. She's literally mm-hmm. just so starved, isolated, lonely that she's going right. to like hold this boy until he disappears from her. And like, how tragic is that? That mm. in the act of trying to like connect to this other person, it disappears. Anyway, that's not what it is. But no. that's what I thought it was. <laughs> and when I thought it was that, it really worked for me. And then I was really annoyed when that wasn't what it was. <laughs> yeah i think you're definitely having one of those episodes of i went in wanting this to be something and (laughs) it's not that and how do you reconcile with that so all this to say 
yeah, I don't think that the film is successful. There's a couple of parts that really work for me. But yeah, this is unfortunately a bit of a miss. And I was surprised to see that so many people did feel like this was a strong adaptation. Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes something is just such a part of the consciousness that you just want it to have another life. And Mm -hmm. you'll you'll root for it regardless. But um, sure, let's do some quick YA bingo. Okay. Bingo! Not a good bingo. All right. Uh, CanCon, Joe. CanCon. In fact, this is a co-production, which I did not realize Uh until I opened the Wikipedia page, because there's no reason you would know that, but it is set in Ontario. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Yeah. Um, Magic Supernatural, obviously. Dead Bodies, obviously. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely abuse. Well, and ableism, actually, like the way right. Sarah Bella was treated by her family and then by the film itself. Like, good, uh. good work, guys. <laughs> yeah, we've got some borrowed time because, of course, once that story starts writing, you've... Well, that that is my other issue with this, is there's no opportunity for these kids to actually fight back. You basically yeah. cannot survive once your story starts to be written. No. Yeah, I didn't love that either. There's no... There's literally nothing you can do but what let the story play out. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that we have some good friendships. I like the three of yep. them together. I think mm-hmm. they're they're a good group. But we also have some hollow friendships and romances in that, yep. like, really the, the conceit of the friendship collapses awfully quickly. And Ramon and Stella, like, I want them to get together, but also sure. why do I? Like, <laughs> Just because they're the two biggest outcasts, right? Yeah. The girl and the person of color. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Uh, I know it's not a date per se, but I like the sort of meet cute at the drive-in theater. And of course, we're playing Night of the Living Dead because A, it is a little bit more period appropriate, but also we don't have to pay rights for that movie, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Um, We basically have a chosen one here because Stella's the only one who can get everybody out of it. Her desire to be a writer is sort of the thing that casts over the whole. Sure. Whatever. Yeah. (laughs) I don't buy it, but okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's it, Joe. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's not a bad smattering. It's not great, but we did get a diagonal line out of it. Well, we got something out of it. There we go. Okay, Joe, so if people want to write to us about how this actually really did work for them, Mm -hmm. uh, you can find us on the socials at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. Joe, where do they find you? I can be reached at B, still my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray, that's Gray with an A, at least on Blue Sky and Instagram. And if you've got something longer form, you want to give us your own fan fiction about these monsters, maybe, I don't know, mm. you can write to us at hkhspod at gmail.com. And uh, as teased earlier, we're continuing the scary season with uh, a look at Goosebumps. We're going to read a couple Goosebumps books and watch the 2015 movie. Mm-hmm. And we'll have a guest for that episode. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, maybe we'll even reference the new Disney Plus TV show that's coming out. I I may try to dip in and see how that works. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, so until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Boo. Amplify or bring them to life. And that's where I found the true power lie. Lied? Lied. <laughs>
Okay. Oh, I'm gonna put the cat out. I don't have time for this. Go, go, go. Go. Go.